Well, good morning again. So good to see everybody. Those of you who stayed in town, I know there's always a, an exodus this weekend for, for locals. Strange how so many people come to New Orleans, but if you're from New Orleans, how many leave New Orleans this weekend? It's a strange impact. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. You have your Bible with you. You have a Bible app. Luke chapter 14. I kind of know this. I think we all know. We may not treasure this as much as we should. The Christian life, this, this thing that's come to us, that's framed all that we live out of, touches everything that defines our lives and gives meaning to things, that came to us by invitation. Right? No one is in the kingdom of God except by invitation. So I think that's important because, you know, you can, especially if you grew up in church or if you're coming from a place like America where, you know, for generations and generations there was just this operation of, of religion that was at work and that that religion for the most part in America was a religion framed by the ideas of the Bible does not necessarily mean that people were genuinely regenerated by the Holy Spirit but they got around the ideas of the Bible and they they attended something called church and so next thing you know you could just be living your life and this has just kind of always been your scene right and you might overlook that no one is here who has not been invited to be here. And, and make that personal. Right, this, this is not like a, a generic invitation that goes out into the newspaper or through social media that whoever just happens to read this, you know, that's, that's not how God invites. God invites individuals. You, as an individual human being, in relation to God, you are here by invitation. He specifically invites you, which is hopeful even for anybody who's here this morning who you're wondering, hey, am I really right with God? Am I in the right place with God? Well, there's a God who invites. Perhaps this morning he's inviting you. What's that invitation going to sound like? Well, last week we engaged it a little bit, called that passage from Matthew 11, the great invitation. I'll go back and visit it in a second, but this passage informs that passage. And so let's read Luke chapter 14, verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm not going to unpack all these verses, but just bearing your own cross would have been a familiar scene. If you'd walk through an urban setting in a Roman city, you would have at some point watched a person take up his cross 
And the only destination you knew he was going to, he wasn't stopping at the coffee shop on the way. He wasn't headed to school. He was going to one place. He was going to die. And so when that phrase gets used, that's what Jesus is referring to. People knew taking up your cross meant that your life is over. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, this is not a passage about buildings and battles. This is not a passage that tells us to be wise investors, to make sure that we do our due diligence on the front end, do our homework before we set out into ventures of life so that we are well prepared to start a career, do something new, etc. Lord, this passage is intended to clarify for us your invitation to be your disciple. And so, Lord, we have grown up around ideas. We have read books. We have been in a culture. We have been around religion. Lord, there's a lot of stuff filling in the blanks for us about what does it mean to be a disciple. Lord, would you help your word and your spirit to clarify what that means for us today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we engaged this incredibly wonderful invitation from Jesus. As he interacted with crowds, he, he looked at them and he saw them in a penetrating way. He, he saw the experiences of their lives. And, and we hear in Matthew 28, from Matthew 11, verse 28, a similar thing to Luke 14. He's talking about coming to him and he issues the invitation, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? There's so much in this passage here. So much that Jesus takes specific account of each and every one of our lives and our life experiences here. And, and don't pretty this up. I don't know how you kind of read past this. You know, come, tell me, all you who, who labor and are heavy laden, you are you are wearied by doing life. You are exhausted by standing up yet another day, another event, another place of responsibility, another job task, another pay the bill, another relationship with another person that might go sideways the way the last ones did. And this is not my first marriage. Uh, all that stuff is what's in this phrase. People who are laboring and are heavy laden, they are under the weight of life. Now, I'm not sure what you think they look like because when people get under the weight of things, 
you get a particular version of them. Have you noticed that? What version do you appear to be when life is frustrating, exhausting, relentless, discouraging? Those are the words here. This is not me at my best. This is the, this is the worst version of me. And, and some of us, when we're the worst version, we're, we're sullen, we're withdrawn, we're pouting, we're hard to interact with. Some of us are angry and aggressive and lashing out and fault-finding and critical. So whatever version we are, that's the audience that Jesus stares at and he says, come, come to me. This is not an attractive audience. I don't, I don't know why it is that we are so easy to misplace. The God who invites us isn't cozying up to something really sweet and comfortable about us. He's not attracted to the best version of us. Right, right now, that's good news for a bunch of us because maybe you're just not an attractive person right now, right? I mean, this life is just really hard in a way that's making you hard to be around. And you can wonder how God, well, this is how God is toward those kinds of people. He, he invites them, come to me. Come to me and I'm going to give you something that, that you keep trying to obtain. You are worn out, striving, incessantly pursuing something. You, you, your soul needs rest. That's an interesting word, right? I don't know what comes to mind. You know, is this a, an invitation to take up your lawn chair at the beach, right? Come to Jesus and he's going to give you rest. You're going to just be sitting on the beach. You know, maybe you're having a nice iced tea, staring out over the ocean waves, no agenda. You got nothing to do. You're on vacation. Jesus is a vacation planner. Come to me and I will send you on the ultimate vacation. You know, when God put Adam in the garden of Eden, he didn't send him on vacation. He actually gave him work to do. He had tasks. He was supposed to subdue the earth and multiply and manage it and fill it. But those tasks weren't supposed to be this miserable, exhausting experience. They became that when sin showed up. So, so be careful that you don't interpret rest in a way that's just sort of, you know, American-ish. Like when you come to Jesus, you're just going to have nothing to do. There's going to be, there's going to be no kingdom agenda attached to your life. You know, you're, you're not going to be active in anything. You're not going to have any goals. You're not going to be pursuing people. You're not going to be standing up projects and doing stuff. That, that's not the kind of rest that's being described here. There's something else that my soul needs and I'm wearied and exhausted trying to get to it. But then Jesus, who gives this invitation in Matthew 11, he he gives a little bit of a qualifier here in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me. So on the one hand, he tells the crowds, come, come to me. And then he qualifies it and says, if anyone comes to me. He cannot be my disciple unless, right? And this is the, this, these are harsh terms. Unless he hates others, bears his cross and renounces his life. All right, so before we kind of unpack a little bit of the, the weightiness of that and almost the awkwardness of it, can, can we all just agree on something? This is so critical. I don't even think some preachers needed to say much of this 100 years ago. But today, we need to hear this, right? I, I wrote some of this in your outline, if you have an outline. 
The manner in which we come to Jesus matters. The manner in which we come. So you have this invitation to come, but the manner, the attitude, the the way we respond to this invitation, it matters. The purpose and workings of the Christian life are not subjective or individually invented. Jesus issues an invitation, but then he doesn't just leave it up to us. Come with whatever attitude you want to come with. Just come. Come with your own ideas, your own approach, your own sense of values, your your own this goes first, that goes second. Whatever I'm thinking, you can deprioritize that and put it way down here. You, You just come. You just come. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus raises the bar. It's like he does want us to come, but he says, now, listen, if you're coming, you can't come like this. So the manner in which we come to Jesus matters. I wrote this also in your outline. Some other plan or manner of coming to Jesus won't work that won't fulfill God's design and it won't have the power to satisfy my soul. Now, I'm intentionally giving you a little bit of self-interest in that statement. This is not just Jesus standing and saying, hey, I'm hardline. I am what I am. Take it or leave it. He, his invitation was a promise to bring rest to our souls. So he says, hey, I'm staring into your brokenness. I'm staring into your need. I am the solution. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm it. Come to me because I know you're worn out. I know you're frustrated. I know you're exhausted trying to fix what's on the inside. Come to me. But he doesn't just leave it up to us to come in whatever way we want because he actually has a purpose that he's fulfilling and he also wants to transfer rest to our souls. He promises that right away. And if you come differently than the way Jesus is inviting us to come, you will not find rest for your souls. So it is helpful for us that we don't negotiate with Jesus when we come. What we do when we negotiate, the the more we, you know, kind of take off the table, you know, because Jesus here is, he's sort of taking it all in a very demanding way. And the more you and I try to take off the table, we invite something back into our soul that will rob us of rest. And it will also not fulfill the purpose God has in making us disciples, which is what we're going to unpack in weeks to come. But just for our own sake, because some of us are coming to Jesus because we recognize the inside of me is driving me toward him. Oh, praise God in the mercy of God that we have discovered self-sufficiency doesn't work. We need the living God. And then God comes and makes a deal with us and he does not negotiate one hair. Matter of fact, he kind of raises the bar a little bit higher. Now, let me, let me be careful about this. When we get to passages, we, we should, and I know some folks are new to the Bible and you're growing in your walk with the Lord and that's outstanding and exciting, but, but we need to bring our theology with us. Why we teach this, why the New Testament teaches. So we got to bring our theology with us here. So when you have Jesus turn around and say, hey, don't come with this minimalistic approach to me. No, 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 no. You got to bring some game here. You, you ratchet it up to here. 
Does anyone here think that he is right now teaching on the doctrine of justification? Do you at all believe that Jesus is saying, hey, look, I'm going to do this deal with you, but you got to do your part. Is this a your part moment? Is this Jesus trying to say, hey, listen, I do some and you do some. And then we'll be right. And this whole thing gets, gets satisfied. So you know, if you want to be right with God, then you gotta, you got to bring it all, man. you got to bring game here. Is that what the rest of the Bible sounds like? Because it's not what the rest of the Bible sounds like. The, the Bible says you and I, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness. You know, whatever currency is in our pocket that we think, heaven doesn't take it. We got no, we don't have a dime. We don't have a penny of heaven's currency to spend on making us right with God. So this passage cannot be Jesus saying, hey, some of you guys, you got a little bit of coin from heaven in your pocket. I'm just wanting you to spend it on this moment. And then we're going to be good with each other. All right. That's not what's being said here. But he is interacting with the manner, the way our faith reaches toward him, the posture of our embrace and receiving of him. And he ratchets this thing up. It's, it's a, you must not have your interest divided. If you're coming to me, you must not have your interest divided. You cannot come half-heartedly. You cannot retain possession of a few things. That's, that's not how you come to me. This is a no-compete clause. In Jesus' invitation. He invites us, but he clearly says, hey, before you start the first step here, because you really can't be my disciple, if there's anything else that's competing with me in your life. Now, I'll make sure you understand here, right? When you read this passage, we always want to bring the rest of the Bible with us to a passage. Otherwise, this is how cults get formed, right? You don't bring the rest of the Bible with you. You read one passage and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I got saved yesterday. I need to hate my father, my mother, my wife, my children. So, yeah, I quit my job. I, they haven't heard from me. I'm living in a commune in California, and uh, I don't even know what's up with them. I guess my kids will figure out a way to, you know, feed themselves and go to college because Jesus called me to follow him, and I'm to hate everybody else now. We do recognize that's not what the Bible sounds like, right? So, obviously, Jesus isn't teaching some strange radicalism that if you really love him because that radical love of his would be in you and loving and honoring your father and your mother is a command from God that brings glory to his name that we should be doing at every opportunity husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church is not an invitation for you to hate your wife so that you can follow Jesus Right? Nurturing and loving our children is what we're called to do as parents. And it demonstrates the, the fatherliness of God in this world. So this is not a negation, an anti-statement in categories the Bible's already spoken into. But what is it? Well, hear this thought from Kent Hughes in his commentary. He says, what Jesus was saying paradoxically was that our love for him must be so great and so pervasive that our natural love of self and family pales in comparison. We are to subordinate everything, even our own being, 
to our love and commitment to Christ. He is to be our first loyalty. All other relationships must take second place. So with a harsh, enigmatic epigram, Jesus yanks from us our dream world. Do you fancy yourself a disciple? Do you think you're going to follow me? Well, then you must love me so much that your love for your family seems like hatred in comparison. Hate your own life. Otherwise, don't pretend to be following me. Jesus' words astonish us. You have to read all the Bible to get all that God has revealed about himself, which is not everything that there is to know, but he's revealed enough for us to know him. So I just can't read the part of the Bible that, that has Jesus coming and he's full of compassion towards the crowds and he sees their brokenness. That means he gets me. Jesus gets me. So now I'm going to respond to the Jesus who gets me. And, and then all of a sudden, like Jesus' evil twin shows up and pulls out Luke chapter 14 and says, Ah, oh, I know I said come, but what I really meant, this is the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus that knows there is such a work of sinful corruption in this world that if I retain ownership of one square inch of my life, that will become a kingdom in a few days. And he's wise enough to know, no, bring that square inch too. Bring everything about you and make sure it is completely mine. But when we respond to Jesus, this, this shouldn't feel like a, a company that's got a bad negotiation going down here. And they're going to sign. Yeah, I'm going to sign on with Jesus. Yeah, what else can I do? I mean, he's the king of kings, right? I mean, he owns everything anyway. Here you go. Here's my life. Is that what Christianity should feel like? That's not how the Bible presents it. This exchange with God sounds like Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, <clears throat> which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's that guy's face look like? As he walks across a field one day, I remember, can't remember who it was, told this story so vividly. But here's a guy doing life, walking with his stick. And he walks across a field and he just happens to dig a little bit deeper into the sand and gunk. He digs around, gunk, gunk, gunk. And he keeps trying to find the edge of this thing and he digs around a little bit more. Looks around, there's nobody around here. What is this? And he digs this thing up and he finds a massive treasure box. And he opens it up. And he looks inside of it. And there is more wealth in that box than he could spend in 10 lifetimes. He closes it back up. And he looks around. There's nobody here. Nobody even knows this is here. Right? And I'm not trying to justify his morals here. Neither was Jesus. But he had found something that was worth everything to him. What's it going to cost for me to buy this field? I will part with everything I have because what's in that box far exceeds everything I have. Now, for this illustration to work, 
you have to have treasure, and it needs to mean something that inspires joy. Otherwise, this is not an illustration that works. So when we come to the kingdom, this invitation to come to the kingdom is an invitation to a treasure that is more valuable than everything else about our lives. Listen, our lives are, are full of value. We have things we value. And some of that stuff is <clears throat> it's material possessions. It's, it's ways of life. But some of it runs much deeper than that. Quite honestly, if, if I could promise you, you could have the, the shiniest new cars and the biggest new homes, but, but you will never have any adventure and excitement for the rest of your life. You'd be like, well, why the heck would I want the car in the house then? Because those things are a means to something else, aren't they? <clears throat> Money is a means to something else. If I told you we're going to deposit $68 million in your account, 68, you will be one of the wealthiest people that anybody knows. However, you can't spend any of it. You, I couldn't make that deal with you, could I? Because we, we want something else, right? We, our treasure is in the things that these things can obtain for us. We want the security that money brings to us. The sense that, hey, if life gets tough, if I get in a bind, if the people that I love have a need, I've got an ability to take care of that. I'm not going to be just losing stuff and feeling threatened by life. I've got some security in my life. Or I've got enough money to be able to exist and do life. That's good. That's needed. And if you're in a different part of the world and you're not an American, that's very valuable. For us, that's just understood. But I've got more than that. So therefore, I don't have to just do the everyday mundane. I can throw some adventures in here. I could travel. I, I could buy something. I could go to some place that's unique and novel and exciting. I, I could live a life that's got some breathability to it, some fun to it, right? All These are the things we're after. We want adventure. We want security in our life. We want people around us and we, we've attached certain things to those people being attracted to us. So we, we want the things in our lives that attract people into our lives. Those are our treasures. And Jesus uses an illustration that says, would you give up everything? For this treasure. Well, what can I do with that treasure? You can buy all that stuff with it. That's what you're going to do with the treasure, right? This guy isn't just interested in, I'm going to leave it right here in the field. I'm going to buy this and leave it in the box in the field. I'm never going to touch it. What's he want to do with that treasure? He wants to buy the things that his heart finds valuable. He wants rest for his soul. Jesus says, I'm the treasure. Come to me. Well, Jesus, see, I, I have these security issues and I'm very fearful about a lot of things in the future. And, and I've got relational needs. And Jesus says, yeah, come to me. I'm the treasure. I'm, I'm going to give you everything. You, you, you can buy everything you need with what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you myself. And you can buy all those things. That's what's being invited here. Now, if there was a guarantee that there was a better life with better conditions and better ability to meet every need that you and I could ever experience. And we knew we had just touched it with the tip of our stick and looked at its depth. Joy would rise up in our hearts as we began to imagine, oh my gosh, what, what? We'd have eight vacations planned already. Our house would be totally remodeled. Heck, we'd probably move out of that one and just build a mansion. 
That's what we'd be dreaming about. And that's what's in this passage. There is a joy in encountering a God who is like this. I wrote this in your outline. Christians aren't these grumbling conformists, people who long for something else, but they're being pressured and corralled by a narrow-minded community and constant guilt trips. For some, that is what Christianity feels like. And for some in the world, that's what they think it is. This passage isn't a moment of noble impoverishment. This guy's walking through the field and he just decides, ah, just going to need to just part with everything fun, everything enjoyable in life here. I'm going to get serious about God. No, no, this guy's going to get treasure and he's going to begin the adventure of his life. That's what's in this passage. Coming to Jesus is that moment when the heart locks on to its ultimate prize. It discovers that nothing else matters like this treasure. It's the recognition that my soul cannot rest anywhere else but in being joined to Jesus. Nothing else will do for me what this treasure will do for me. I will part with everything in my life to have it. Listen, Christianity looks less like monks wearing burlap in some desert location and more like Romeo and Juliet. People have found something so attractive and that they love so much that they do radical stuff in order to be around it and to have it. Not people who in human strength just withdraw and withdraw and withdraw and minimize and minimize and minimize. Jesus calls for an impoverishment so that he might make us wealthier than we ever could have imagined with a wealth that's different than the treasures that we have fallen in love with. Jesus clarifies this invitation. It is an invitation to wildly abandon everything in order to have one thing in our lives, and it is him. And then he clarifies the crowds. Right, Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Let me just make a brief comment about the crowds. Um, there were all kinds of folks who came for all kinds of reasons to check out this guy named Jesus and the reputation that he had. The beauty, the wonder, the power, the wisdom, the authority. They, they came from miles to come find and have an audience and to observe and to be around Jesus. To this day, no one has aroused more curiosity amongst the crowds of humanity than one person who ever existed in human history. And that, that should gather every skeptic's attention. That for some reason, I mean, look around the room here. There's hundreds of people sitting in this room on the other side of the world from when this Bible was walked out and written. And you're here this morning. You know, Keith was up here earlier taking an offering. People, you know, if you're new here, people in this room are going to give gobs of their money away. Gobs. They're going to give all kinds of time beyond just being here. They're, they're going to live a life in a certain way because this one individual who walked on planet Earth all these years ago continues to grab the attention of crowds in a way that nobody else ever has. But there were crowds in that day and there are crowds in this day who, who Jesus recognized. Your curiosity is not your problem. 
It's the way you count cost, that is. You can come to me and be curious because it really doesn't cost you anything. You can be here this morning. You can show up in a meeting. You can listen to the Bible preach. You can read a book. You can go to a small group meeting and hear people interact about certain things. But if you're not all in, you're, you're just curious. Just curious to see what you don't really intend to put this stuff on and live in it. Just kind of window shopping. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, listen, people walk around the mall and they window shop. They're not going to possess almost anything that they stare at. But there's something a little bit cathartic about just staring at it, right? Just you go out and you look and you, and you just kind of wonder, you know, if I had that. You know, if you're into sporting goods and you can go to Dick's or whatever and you're kind of like, yeah, that'd be That'd be really cool. You going to buy it? Nah, it costs too much. There, there is a sense in which, again, remember, can I just make sure you understand? I'm not talking about justification here, right? There is nothing. You got no currency in the justification category. You can't buy an ounce of getting right with God. You can't do it. So when Jesus talks about counting the cost, he's not asking you to contribute to your righteousness before God. But he is calling you to abandon your project of yourself completely. And that's going to cost something. Because I've got a building project going on, right? I'm building stuff. I've got things that are halfway done. And man, I'm really pretty sure when I get that done, ooh, it's, it's going to make me feel secure or wanted or wealthy or successful. It's going to do something for me, man. And Jesus turns around and says, hey, I I want you to walk away from all that. And that's a little hard. You do recognize, again, this is rest does not mean, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, all of us will be unemployed for the rest of our lives. We'll just kind of hang around our houses uh, until they dilapidate and fall in on our heads. And and then we'll just be homeless together. We all live under the same bridge because we're following Jesus and we've counted the cost and we're all unemployed. You're actually going to have a career. You're going to be good at stuff. You're going to live your life toward things in the kingdom of God. So this has got to be about something else. But it is definitely about stopping being a curious crowd person. Just window shopping Jesus. And listen, in today's day, churches are full of window shoppers. And I'd love to say, well, not the church that we pastor around here. I'd love to say that's true. But churches are full of curious window shoppers who hear things and we kind of have no intention of doing that. Jesus says, you really want to be my disciple? Because that's what I'm calling you, be my disciple. And he's clarifying what that means. Let me clarify lastly this, this calling to be something. What is this invitation What is Jesus actually inviting us to when he says, come to me? Well, he he is calling us to a relationship centered on being his disciple. And he calls us from a variety of places. He calls us broken and wounded and emotionally spent. We're damaged. We, We come, we seek healing, and none of those things are wrong. And Jesus does not lack an ounce of compassion. He does care. He does engage our lives. He does heal up our wounds. He does mend what's broken in our life. He does all those things. This is not an indifferent Jesus who's on some disciple project. But the invitation is an invitation to be a disciple. 
There is no other invitation. Jesus doesn't give any other invitations. It's like, hey, there's a bunch of you guys who would love to be disciples. I'll talk to you guys in just a second. And then there's some of you who would rather be what? Can you find me another Bible word that describes the other group of Jesus people are? We got no other word, do we? We're either disciples or, or, or we don't have a description anymore. So that word disciple means something. And it's the one thing that we're all called to be and to do together. So again, not overlooking our individual stories. Jesus is not doing that to any one of us here. You are here specifically as an individual by invitation from God then we are disciples and that discipleship feels a certain way. Let me give you one last quote. The band can go ahead and come back up. Ken Hughes says, the Christian way is different. Christ says, I'm sorry, actually this is C.S. Lewis. Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. Uh, Mr. Lewis, that's a very clarifying phrase, isn't it? All the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked. Why is it that we have much more clarity in the wicked category? Why is it that we get that, hey, wicked behavior, sinful wickedness that really does get in the way of the kingdom of God? Uh, so does innocent desires when they're owned by me and they're not submitted and surrendered to him. And how many of you guys have been a Christian long enough to recognize in the beginning, the wicked desires are the loud ones. And as you walk with Jesus over time, the Innocent desires become the problem. We kind of do away with a lot of the noisy, sinful, terrible stuff that most of us were doing before we came to Jesus. But then the innocent stuff, the stuff that I really, really want, that's competing with what Jesus really, really wants. That becomes the issue. And I wish I could say uh, I've got a great class or a book to tell you how I kicked the habit. Uh, I wish I have innocent desires that are a problem in the way I walk out my faith. Ken Hughes says this, discipleship requires everything. There are no exceptions. No one has ever become a disciple of Christ and lived a life of ease. 
You can search the writings of the apostolic church and you will find no exception. You can check every writing and personal vignette during the first 400 years of the church and you will find no disciple lounging on a bed of constant comfort. The same is true of the Dark Ages and the Renaissance and the Reformation and the 500 years of intervening history. Discipleship calls for sacrifice. But, listen carefully, but in all this discomfort, something beautiful emerges. The tandem challenges to pay the relational cost, to hate one's closest relationships and even one's own life in comparison with one's love for Christ. And to pay the sacrificial cost to shoulder death and follow Jesus begins, listen, begins to create a new Disciple, a man or woman who is sharp and pungent. By the way, that's the kind of cheese that I shop for, which this guy must eat cheese as well. Sharp and pungent. A salty Christian who brings tang and flavor to life. Everyone benefits, not the least of which is his, quote, hated family. See, this brand of disciple who brings their life with openness to, Lord, whatever you're going to be to me, you be to me. And I just take my hands off forcing life to be whatever I'm wanting it to be. Lord, I'm just fully giving this thing over to you. That begins what disciples are called to undergo, a process of transformation. Being a disciple is a transformative experience that sits at the center of everything we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. It's why we say growing together for the glory of God. We are growing. We are being transformed. We are moving from one location to another. Our flavor is changing. The aroma of who we are as human beings who bear the image of God, the things that can be seen in us and experienced, the the way we smell when you're around us, the, the genuine attitude that's coming off of our lives, it is different now than it was a year ago. And 10 years ago, it is transformative. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't happen when you retain partial ownership. So, no, you can't be my disciple if you won't relinquish everything to me. This is the entranceway into the kingdom of God. This is not fine print, by the way. I know sometimes people get around an invitation to Jesus. And it's a message that you really can you find you can find in the Bible that's tapping into the fact that, that you are hurting at some point in your life. You have come in contact with the needs and the vulnerability of doing life as a human being in this world. And, and you want Jesus to step into that. And then you, you hear, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are wearied and heavy laden. You hear that invitation, but even in that invitation, take my yoke on you and learn from me. That word learn, it's the the Greek word mathano. It's from which we get mathetes, which is the word disciple. 
So even in that invitation, Jesus is calling us to be his disciple. The the solution to my restless soul sits in me living life on this earth as a disciple of Jesus. And then he turns around and says, and if that's the case, you, you can't retain ownership of your life. You can't be in control of it. What controls you in this world and what is broken about you, it will be the the inch that becomes the mile in your life. It won't work. So before we teach on discipleship, can we revisit our invitation to Jesus? Jesus invites us to him. But this is what he sounds like in that invitation. So I want the Lord to just grab hold of us this morning and fish around in these spaces of our lives to see, Lord, have I come to you responding to your invitation this way? As though everything in my life has this radical openness to you for whatever purpose you have next for me. Let's stand up together. Thank you for for gathering us, for letting us encounter your presence, for communing with us, for communicating to each of us. God, thank you for taking us back to this moment, this, this initial place of our recollection. Maybe for some of us here this morning, God, this morning is that initial place, that moment of invitation. want you to ponder for a moment just being quiet with the Lord and just sensing him interacting with you where you are right now sensing his presence speaking to you as a person you ponder that invitation that long ago or recent invitation between you and God can you answer this critical thought Who was inviting whom? Was Jesus inviting you to be his disciple? This thing, this disciple, a surrendered, learning, growing, trusting, changing follower of Jesus. Was that what was on the table? Was that the invitation? Or perhaps instead you were inviting him. Inviting him into your current life understanding. Inviting him into the things that you value and treasure. Inviting him in to be a source of power to turn all of your world into things that make sense to you right now at this moment. Inviting whoever Jesus is to to come and help you in your hurt, in your difficulty, in your story. All of us get that. 
the invitation in this setting is the invitation that Jesus gives. That invitation is an invitation to be his disciple and being his disciple is the treasure hidden in the field. It is the thing that's going to touch my story and bring healing, hope and help, direction, adventure and protection and security and relationships. It's, it's going to bring all those things. It's going to purchase all of that for me. And his invitation says, it's worth it. Sell everything. Be my disciple. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you have any doubt at all, question about whether you are a disciple of Jesus, whether you have come to that place where you said, Lord, everything about my life, all that I'm after, all that I seek, all all that I'm nervous about, all that I've longed for, all those goals, I just give them all to you. I just entrust them all to you. However it works out, Lord, it's in your hands. Here, I, I just present my life to you. I abandon all of my life to you, Jesus. You are the treasure that I seek. If, if you've not done that, maybe, maybe the Lord's been bringing you to this place for some time. Maybe he's been helping you understand that everything else ends in emptiness. This morning, by faith, without knowing all that Jesus has for your future, I don't know all that he has. I know a lot about what he has for your future. I don't know a lot of the details. He's just calling you to trust him. To give your life to him without any strings attached. To take the most valuable things in your life, which probably sit in categories of the things that you fear the most and the things that you work the hardest to control. Say, Lord, I, I am willing to take my hands off those things and give them to you and trust them to you. Listen, if you've not done that before and you'd like to do that this morning right now, just by a decision, you can do that. If you want to make that decision this morning, I'm not going to call you up here this morning. Just just wave at me. Just wave your hand at me and say, yeah, I do this morning. I, I want to make that decision. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else want to make that decision this morning? God, I, I just, everything about me, I'm just entrusting to you. Lord, you see in this group, Lord, hearts that are hearing your invitation. They're hearing the deal that you've placed before them. One that that your intention is that they would be able to find rest for their souls. Or to find a new place in this life that you are so deeply interacting with that it produces rest in their souls. Lord, would you lead them forward from this moment on trust you completely, Lord, to entrust these things to you, to be a disciple who says everything else in my life pales in comparison to looking to Jesus to be what I need him to be. Nothing else. I'm not looking to anything else the way I look to Jesus to be to me what I need him to be. I know there are some who are here who 
Uh, Lord, they have just found themselves in this world that is difficult to reign, discouraging to reign. Some have been walking with you for a while, but the idea that joy compels them forward into the next thing, Lord, that's, that's been lost. Somewhere it's been lost. Lord, something else could be replacing that. Lord, just a sense of duty, a sense of there's nothing else I, I could or should do with my life. But Lord, some have lost joy. Lord, they, the sense of a treasure in a field and an adventure that it, that it unfolds before us as we entrust has been lost, Lord. I want to pray for folks this morning. I want to ask the prayer team if you guys would come forward. Just be available just to pray for some needs that are among us. Listen, if you responded just now to surrendering your life to Christ and you want to have somebody pray with you this morning, well, well, come and do that. Come let somebody engage this moment with you. Can I just talk to those of us who we surrendered years ago maybe? but we've just lost our sense of adventure. That treasure in the field, it's not launching me with joy into the next place. Would you like somebody to pray with you about that? Can we just pray for folks to experience a renewed joy in their life? These are difficult days. No one should feel ashamed if you feel like I've I've just lacked joy. I just have, I've struggled. To have this sense that there is an adventure from God like no other adventure. Listen, I, I, I know the comfort in the Bible is there for a reason. Because it can be really painful and we can lose that along the way. But can we ask God to restore it? The joy of our salvation. The adventure of the days that are awaiting us. If you'd like to pray like that, could you find your way forward? Ronald's going to lead us in this last song. Let there be faith that invades the dark moments where there's discouragement. And and let God awaken something. Don't leave these things alone. They kind of don't self-restore. It takes a step of faith in our lives. Jesus called for radical stuff, right? Hate this, give up everything about that. And then there's this amazing return that floods into our souls as disciples. So if you need prayer this morning, go ahead and come up and just ask. And just pray with me. You don't have to share details if you don't feel led to. But God may meet you this morning in some particular way that brings fresh joy into the coming days for reasons that are just up to God. But he can do that. So Father, as we sing this song, Lord. We we have this word in our vocabulary. Lord, we know we are disciples. Lord, would you, would you fill that in more richly, Lord? Would you let that not be a word that lacks nuance and significance and impact on our souls? So once again, Lord, we just sing of our lives openness and surrender and entrusting to you for your glory. You my life, I give you my trust, Jesus. 
You are my God, and you are enough. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. I give you my trust. Jesus, you are my you are enough, Jesus. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all, take it all, my life in your hands. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all, take it all, my life in your hands. I lay down my life, I take up my cross. Jesus, for you are my God, whatever the cost.